0: Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of this land. And we pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Hi! I'm Alicia Stevenson, your host for this episode of Next Generation Innovators, a Future Women podcast in partnership with Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Program. Each week, we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. Today, I'm speaking with Desley Maidment, CEO and co-founder of State of Escape. The brand's signature escape bag earned cult status within months of its Australian launch in 2013, and the rest of the world soon followed, but this was just the beginning of State of Escape's evolving collections. Desley, welcome to Next Generation Innovators.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you today.
0: Desley, I distinctly remember being at a cafe in Melbourne and noticing just how many women had a state of escape bag. It sort of came from nowhere and then it was everywhere. And it's a real cult product now. How do you create that kind of cult following?
1: Well, to be honest, I don't think you can actually create a cult following. All you can do is Create something that is true to who you are. And I think that's really what happened with Bridget and I. Bridget is uh, my business partner and she's the creative director, co-founder. And, you know, she has a, a design background, a graphic design background. She's incredibly creative. And she discovered the fabric and really liked the possibilities of what it could mean We came up with this quite incredible, simplistic but beautiful and unique bag. So we sort of then started to get some friends to have a look, start using it, see what they thought of it, and we got really positive feedback. So, you know, we thought maybe we're onto something here and that's really how it came to life. It was very much driven by Bridget and her desires about where she was in her life at that time and what she needed in a bag.
0: So that's quite interesting because handbags are a really individual and purposeful purchase and clearly thousands and thousands of women prefer state of escape. But how would you describe that gap in the market and how your brand filled that gap more specifically?
1: I think the simplicity of it was something that was fresh for people. It lacked embellishments, it was very lightweight. Um, It was easy to style back to anyone's wardrobe and it lends itself to a variety of people's lifestyle. So I think that that was something that was really fresh and new to market. So it sort of created its own category there. And the fact that, you know, it could be machine washable, it had all these other ridiculously practical elements to it that didn't relate to design. And I think that that was something that women, um, you know, it, it really resonated with them.
0: I was going to say that the machine washable element of the bag was the thing that struck me most when I first saw it, because if anyone's ever done a handbag clean out or had their bag professionally cleaned, to put it in the washing machine, a revelation, and it makes it truly versatile and truly durable as a piece of fashion accessory, that it can be cleaned by you very easily in a normal way that you would clean everything else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we certainly didn't set out to have it be machine washable, but because of the beauty of the fabric, the soft suppleness of the fabric, the durability of it as well, and then, you know, we obviously determined that, you know what, this has machine washable qualities to it. This, this could be really something in this category. Desley, you've
0: mentioned your business partner, Bridget. You were friends before you went into business together. How do you cultivate and nurture a professional relationship together. And how do you delineate lines of work and responsibilities? How did you shake it out between the two of you as you started to get proper momentum?
1: Bridget is creative and I am not. I like spreadsheets and I manage the business and she does not. So we have worked out where our skills and our talents lie. Instinctively, I know that she knows the best designs, the best things to take to market. I bring insight in terms of commercial understanding, things that we're seeing from a sales perspective, she'll take that into consideration. But we are just very in tune with each other and we trust each other's instincts. So I have a friend, first and foremost. We've always said friendship comes before business. We're very fair. We always operate with integrity and we don't have egos either. It's not in the slightest little bit and that has really served us very well. There
0: is a wonderful video I've seen of uh, someone that works for you making the bag. It's individually produced and it's described quite intimately by yourself as a labour of love, each bag. In the early days, what was the decision process behind manufacturing by hand onshore in Australia when so many labels go offshore?
1: Well, it was very important for us to be producing something that was going to be um, always of the highest quality due to the perforation in the neoprene you have to and and there's a stretch to the neoprene as well as you would be familiar with you you have to actually hand cut every pattern to cut between the holes because if you don't cut between the holes you'll get this sort of zigzag going on which would mean you would either have a, a really ugly line on the inside of the bag or you would have to somehow cover that which would require some sort of additional element to the bag and and Bridget was always very particular that the inside of the bag needed to be as beautiful as the outside we never wanted to line the bag you know we wanted it in its most simplistic form as possible and so that's where that whole handmade piece came from we did investigate offshore but there was no one who'd be willing to do that But ideally, the purpose of having an Australian-made bag made us feel so much better about how we were producing it. It was made to order. You know, there wasn't any wastage. We didn't have to worry about minimum orders and just mass producing. We wanted to work off a very different model. Um, But in saying that, we did task ourselves with an almost impossible Um, ask of finding a local manufacturer because local manufacturing in Australia is tricky, whether it be apparel or accessories. But particularly when you're asking someone to make something that isn't scalable, it's really hard because everything has to be hand cut. You can't even stack fabric and do it.
0: There is so much involved in it, but I'm interested in that initial stage because there are many people out there that listen to our podcasts that have ideas or are starting a business and need to make these really vital decisions about who makes our product and at what level do we accept excellence or do we compromise and how do our ideals and our finance uh, overlap? How did you navigate all of that?
1: Yeah, look, it was a very long-winded process. It was at times potentially felt like it was soul-destroying because we had this beautiful product that Bridget had made herself, you know, on her kitchen table and had made a number of them. But to try and take that to a more um, commercial level was becoming really tricky and we visited many, many leather makers and others in, you know, around Surrey Hills, around where the rag trade is, having worked in fashion recruitment. So I used to recruit buyers, operations, production managers, assistants, blah, blah, blah. So I started to sort of reach out to some of my old candidates and say, hey, can you help me? I'm trying to find a local manufacturer, a local maker and so we just, through many meetings, many conversations, many no's, we finally found someone who agreed to give us a shot, see what they could do. We will compromise on things around the business and you you work out what you need to do. But when it came to the design and the quality, Bridge Thankfully was very firm in her commitment to not compromising on certain elements and we worked very hard to to work that in with this particular maker and he was a sample maker so he actually did appreciate a lot of those elements but there was a lot of back and forth and it was funny the last sample we got he literally gave it to us and he said if this is not good enough it's not going to happen for you like this is as good as it gets And we were like, okay, so we went over, we picked it up, and thankfully he he got it right. But it had taken a lot of very close work with Bridget and him to go through all those finer elements and work it out. And then over time, you know, he got even better and better and better. It was a really long process. So for anyone starting, you know, You just can't give up, I guess, is is where we went. We just had to stick to our guns and we'd find the right person to make this for us.
0: So I suppose get used to hearing no, get used to it being a long process and don't compromise on the things that you've identified in the early piece are the really important parts to you and have a friend who's a graphic designer, who you start the business with who's really pedantic about getting exactly what she wants.
1: Well, exactly. She's all about scale and proportion, being a graphic designer, so she really understood that, and thank God because I didn't. So I was learning along the way, and you know she was seeing things that I couldn't see. Um, yeah, it was a good twelve months of just back and forth and believing in in what we had.
0: How does one go about creating a product? Was there a strategy behind it? Can you give us some insights into that?
1: There was definitely, you know, a, a huge a level of naivety that, that existed between Bridget and I in terms of that cult bag creation. We never set out to do that. What we did set out to do, though, was create a product that had that versatility but it was also really beautiful. And as I said, it, it's the simplicity of the design. We really just believed in... Keeping it simple for women because the complexities of our lives are there already. So it's about simplifying the choice. And part of the name, like we obviously came up with the name State of Escape, that was partly because Bridget and I had a small family. We used to work. We hadn't been working and we wanted to escape. We wanted to get out there and live our lives and also be able to take our families on these journeys. Bridge and I are very much the sort of adventurous type and, and that's the woman we were appealing to and we felt that that very much existed in Australia. We were very focused on the Australian customer. We didn't even think about the global piece. We were thinking about those women who live really interesting lives, they're adventurous, spirited, but they want the simplicity of what this could offer as opposed to adding to complexities of their lives. It was simplifying it for them. And they could literally put half their life inside this bag or just a little bit of their life, you know, whether they have children or they don't, whether they're going to work or to the gym or whatever that was in those initial stages. It was really very much about that and about the travel because we do feel in general Australians are adventurous. You know, we do feel that that sense of adventure that Bridget and I have inside of us and why we started this business and, and called it State of Escape, we felt that that would resonate with these women in Australia and, you know, it, thankfully it did. Does it resonates
0: with me greatly, the line that you just said where you want to put half your life in a bag <laughs> so so that you can go anywhere because I have this firm belief amongst my girlfriends and myself that you're either a small handbag woman Or you're a big handbag woman like me, where if you're going anywhere, you must have half your universe in that bag to be prepared for anything. And I've often sat in awe of my friends who can carry around a clutch size handbag, and that's acceptable for them, you know, with everything that they need to get out and about. And so big handbags, getting prepared for life, ready for whatever adventure comes, resonates with me wholeheartedly as a big handbag kind of girl.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think over time, we've sort of definitely built out the collections like that so that we have created these smaller bags so that women sometimes don't always need the bigger bag. But what we find now as well is that I'll take my escape bag, but inside that I might have one or two other bags because on my day, my day is not just filled with one purpose. I might have two or three things that I have to do in that time. So I can just pull one bag out of the escape bag, for example, the festival, throw it over my shoulder quickly, dash into the shops, go do some errands, come back, put that bag inside, but I didn't need it all at exactly the same time. Of All of the new collections as we've gone along is very much considered, it, they're always very design-driven, but with an element of understanding what women are doing in their lives and giving them the opportunity to utilise it in a way that works for them.
0: Was there a social media strategy or plan behind the back of it? I know that you have a very commercial mind and I know for a fact because I've seen the product of your mind that you are fantastic at corporate, commercial, global partnerships. But was there any kind of underlying social media plan to really get that exposure?
1: Not really, to be honest, because I think you know it's been 7 years since we launched and social media yes it was around but it not to the extent and the level of importance it poses now for us as a brand and for all brands you know it certainly wasn't what launched us we weren't an instagram brand it was really about picking and having those great retail partners to start with was really where it came about and then it was very organic that groundswell that sort of happened amongst these women in these certain areas in Sydney and Melbourne and then you know in Brisbane and then Perth and you know all of that that sort of all sort of happened that way word of mouth I would say was definitely the biggest driver it was not Instagram because back in 2014 although Instagram was around it wasn't what it is today Um, Facebook, yes, was around and we certainly had accounts and and we worked on them and we always wanted to create great content to tell the story of the brand and, and connect with customers, but it was very much word of mouth. And then even internationally, we started because we saw Australians taking their bags on holidays and someone will come up and say, oh, I really like your bag. Where's that from? And I think that continues today, even with all the other social media strategies that we have in place. That are incredibly important to the success and the continuing driving of audience. Just having a beautiful product on the arm of somebody, and then somebody who works in the industry sees that bag, approaches that person, asks that question, and off we go. Another market, another entry.
0: It's incredibly satisfying to hear that the secret source of creating a cult brand is a good quality product, the right branding partners, and word of mouth of one good quality product to another.
1: Yeah, it's about having a really authentic community of people and you do trust your friends, you trust your work colleagues, you trust those people that have the product, they've used it, they have positive things to say about it. You know, there there are so many people who are influencers and it's hard to always understand where the authenticity now sits.
0: I'm interested on that note specifically to your thoughts on this in terms of the fashion industry more broadly. It's changed significantly over the last 10 years and there's a greater and greater divide between traditional and new age fashion brands. What do you think that fashion brands need to espouse to be long-lasting and to make it into the future in the ever-changing fashion industry?
1: Look, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, different brands have different value and purpose, I think, depending on whether you're an apparel brand, an accessory brand, a combination of both, what markets you sit in. No matter what, I think you can't lose the basics of believing in what you're producing, not chasing constant profits. If you're just following trends too closely, you'll get find yourself in trouble because people won't know what you stand for as a brand. And you can always dip into that if you want to. But I think to just constantly follow trends, produce, volume, and this is where some of those bigger high street retailers have got themselves into trouble because there's just this mass production of really non-valuable product out there. It's not well-designed. It doesn't have long-term value. And I think even particularly since obviously the COVID situation, people are wanting to buy into products that hold their value for longer. People will invest in more pieces that have some level of durability. It's not just this shirt you're going to wear on Friday night and then you're never going to wear it again. I think people feel they're becoming far more conscious consumers as well. And I think brands have to be incredible incredibly mindful of
0: that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Programme.
1: The Entrepreneurs' Programme can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way. And you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs' Programme can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 132846.
0: Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where my guest today is Desley Maidment from State of Escape. I'm interested in what COVID has done for your business and how it's impacted. And if there were challenges, how did you navigate those challenges and what did it look like from your business's perspective?
1: One of the things that was quite interesting for us, our head office is in in Sydney, our manufacturing is in Sydney but then you have Bridget and I who are living in you know America and and Singapore so we were experiencing COVID on a more of a global scale as well and that gave us a lot of insight into what else was happening. You know I was in the centre of Asia, Bridget's in the centre of the US, she was in New York which obviously was one of the epicentres of the whole world of COVID outbreak. Australia Obviously, there were lockdowns and there were still people who were hurting in that regard. So we really just kind of tried to, to stop everything spinning by going, okay, what's everyone seeing, hearing? What can we control? What can't we control? What is our best strategy for the right now? We can't plan too much. So we really just made sure we looked after our staff first and foremost, got everybody home, made sure they could work from home, made sure they felt safe. We made sure our manufacturer was okay. What could he do? What couldn't he do? And then we spoke to all our retail partners. What were they doing? The stores closed. Were they doing e-com? What was available fulfillment? All of those things. So it's really just getting a lay of the land, and then working out okay, what can we do right now? And we really just slowed everything right down, but we kept going. Touch wood, we were you know we were quite fortuitous. We didn't have any orders cancelled. We didn't have any massive impact on the what was already in motion. What was impacted was that people stopped forecasting what they would be buying, if they were going to be buying, those kind of things. But we just kept ticking along with with e-commerce, with their e-commerce, and just really keeping it very simple and, and short time frames. Let's get through this week. Because everything was changing every day from one country blowing up to the next. But the good thing that came out of that was we all became incredibly much more connected about exactly what was going on. I made sure I was very across all of, I mean, I'm always across the financials, but even deeper and where are we at and where are we going to be at if everything stops for the next three months, where are we going to be at? All of those things. So it actually was a really great time to take a breath.
0: In the early stages, what were your first key hires in the business, aside from yourself and Bridget, of course, what were the first key hires and why?
1: Yeah, the, the first key hire was really um, was this Belgian lady who was, who's a very good friend of ours now, and she came in to help us. so she had a marketing background. But she ended up helping us just fulfill orders because everything was blowing up so much. But then another really key high was in the the financial side of things. So getting somebody to really look after even just the simple things of bookkeeping and really managing cash flow because before that it was me and I knew every dollar coming in and every dollar going out. But as we got bigger and bigger and I was doing everything from QC to fulfillment to going to the post office and same with Bridget, we were doing everything we realised that we really had to keep our eye on the finances. So we brought in a part-time sort of bookkeeper finance lady who is still with us today and is now um, our Head of Finance and Operations. And then we also worked with a number of sort of, I guess, consultants outside that Bridge had in the creative space in terms of like art direction and really making sure we got the brand right because, again, that was sort of, you know, Bridget's background and she understood the importance of really nailing that brand piece the product was doing well it was selling itself but we really needed to get the brand positioning right from there it started to be more about uh, production you know having Bridget manage production and design and all of that was just insane and purchasing and yes it was just a rolling beast all of a sudden
0: It's amazing. I love to hear that one of your first hires. This always makes me really happy because it proves this well-worn point that I have when I give people startup advice a lot, which is, you know, what is something we should focus on? And I always say healthy startups, healthy organizations have a keen eye, a hawk eye on finances. And it is the sole role of that person to ideate around finances and to anticipate where problems are going to be because as you've just beautifully said, it's one thing to know where the dollars are coming in and where they're going out. But if you have one person focusing on that, they can almost anticipate when there's going to be some issues. I always find it's uh, incumbent upon people who start organisations to almost hand that across to someone who keeps an eye on it for you so you can pay attention to everything else.
1: Absolutely. And you have to be able to do that. And I think, as I said before, about working in recruitment and in fashion, one of the things I saw time and time again, unfortunately, is the biggest issues were cash flow for people in the rag trade. One of the number one reasons people will fail is they don't have someone with a financial head in the business looking at what is going on and being able to get those right terms of trade, even just simple things like that, and being quite fierce and determined not to say, okay, you can just pay us whenever. It isn't easy and you do have to kind of earn the respect, but that's, again, where you try and find and you work very small and you you kind of keep it simple and don't dump 10,000 units on a retailer and expect them to sell it and then give you the money for it work really small. And again, that's where that local manufacturing really helped us because we could do really small drops of product because then they could actually pay the invoice as well. If you're producing offshore, you've got to have these minimums and then you've got this huge amount of investment you've made in product and then you've got to try and make sure that people are going to pay you for it and you've paid for, you know, purchasing of raw materials and we were never going to be one of those brands that didn't pay their makers. And to this day, we still pay our maker within 48 hours of him delivering our product. He gets paid regularly, twice a week, whereas there are people out there who are so awful that do not pay their makers and I do not understand how they can sleep at night. So that's something that's really important to Bridget and I as well.
0: Well, and how you don't foster terrible relationships from that because money is so central to people's sense of security. But i tell you what, Desi, you could not be preaching to the choir any harder than what you are now. You know, if I was to make one song about doing anything, it would be about cash flow you know, cash flow runs away from you, overextension and then massive risk. And, you know, that's a one, two, three punch that I've seen so many times. So I love that that's something that's come up organically here, just smart, good business. In that vein, we always ask one final question, you know, for those listening that have a great business idea or they're just starting out, what's one piece of advice overarchingly that you would give to those people?
1: Look, operating with integrity. I believe that that will come back at you in so many positive ways about the relationships you develop with your suppliers. It's about the relationships you develop with your retail partners. It's about the relationships you develop with your staff. It's about then being able to navigate those tricky times because you've set up these really positive, strong relationships where people will support you. It's about trying to keep it really simple at the beginning as best you can. Don't overcomplicate things. Trust your gut you know don't don't be opportunistic just think it through and think about what you're trying to achieve and if it's all about the money it's it's not you need you need a much deeper passion and drive because there will be days where you will cry there'll be days where you're so exhausted and you've worked 7 days a week and the guilt from not seeing your family as much as you'd like or or not spending as much time with your friends or all of those things you have to know how to how to accept that you're working towards something that means so much that you know at the end that there is something that is so positive about this and those around you will support you and guide you and then you'll be so excited and the, and the joy and the, the values that that brings to your life and those around you is also great. You know, the, the suppliers, the retailer, everybody is feeling good about these situations and I know I'm making it sound like there's never any problems, there are always. I do, I'm a big believer that it will work much more in your advantage than being demanding and unrealistic and very self centered.
0: That's fantastic advice. I cannot reiterate to you enough how much fantastic, profound, real, genuine advice has come across in this podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to have a chat and to share our experiences. We, I really appreciate it. And, and, and I know Bridget does too. So thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Next Generation Innovators is a Future Women podcast made in partnership with Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Program, and it's produced by Shout.
1: Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and we'll see you next week.